Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. Today's podcast is going to be hosted by my colleague, Joe Kalman, when he interviews Yvonne Kleesh. But before we get into that, let's Joe and I discuss uh, what's going on in the news this week. Joe, uh, what's happening? Well, let's just dive right into it. Uh, let's first up discuss the upcoming OPEC Plus meeting uh, scheduled for the Thursday of this podcast's release, which is uh, Thursday, November 30th, 2023. Uh, This meeting has been plagued by troubles, which CGAI fellow Rory Johnston succinctly explained in the latest edition of his Commodity Context newsletter. We talked a bit about this dispute in the last podcast intro, but Rory provides some great additional context to the incentives driving some of the players within OPEC apart. One fact that I think should be underlined is the position of the United Arab Emirates. Rory quoted a surprising statistic. While the UAE has a 3.2 million barrel per day OPEC quota, its production capacity is estimated at 4.2 million barrels per day, having invested to lift its capacity by 800,000 barrels per day during the pandemic. Meanwhile, the UAE quota is set to be lifted by just 200,000 barrels per day in 2024. UAE leaders are certainly frustrated by their low quota, considering the investments they have made in improving production. This provides greater impetus for reducing the quotas of countries which have consistently missed targets like Nigeria and Angola. But wrestling these quotas away is difficult, given that oil exports are a balance of payments lifeline for these countries, and OPEC requires consensus on quota decisions. Yeah, I was reading some interesting things about this this morning on other on some of my other feeds and yeah, Nigeria and Angola have their backs up about, uh, you know, they haven't invested the capital in this last couple of years either. So their production has slipped, right. And they, they can't meet the, they, they can't meet their quota, let alone having to be cut some more. Um, but the wildcat really is Iraq, uh, would who, and Iraq's been overproducing for months now, uh, currently about a hundred thousand barrels per day over its target. This is despite, as Rory points out, the shuttered Kirkuk-Sahan pipeline. If this Iraq-Turkey dispute is resolved, overproduction could rise even further. Uh, You know, these issues could easily be resolved in a situation with low global oil supply. However, while oil demand is breaking records, U.S. and Guyanese oil production has easily filled the gap left by OPEC production cuts in the past two years, taking away some of OPEC's market share. Um, And all of these disputes underline the pressure that Saudi faces as the enforcer of the OPEC cartel. Disparate players have different interests. They generally wanted to increase production and maneuver to uh, enable that to happen. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia is pushing to further reduce production to maintain the high oil price it needs for its budget. And at the end of the day, they all do, really. Um, But volume metrics can make up for some of that in the short term. The issue is the kingdom's only effective enforcement mechanism when OPEC becomes too unruly is to swamp the market with oil. It is still the world's lowest cost producer and can ruin the finances of many countries and oil companies in a matter of months. This was a great newsletter and I strongly recommend all our listeners check out Rory's work. We'll be having him on the podcast to talk about this and more in the coming weeks. Yeah, interesting. You know, we'll see what happens. That's tomorrow, the 30th. We'll have recorded this. OPEC will have been meeting 
earlier when people wake up and read this new this uh, listen to this podcast the, the when you're listening to it now OPEC will have done something there'll be noise going on in their meetings so right on the front of cap well cop 28 right mm-hmm. lots going on Joe. <laughs> but next now, what's up see. next uh, next up, completely turning the page to a different part of the world and a different commodity, I'd like to talk about the closure of the Cobra Panama mine. So on Tuesday, the Panama Supreme Court ruled that First Quantum Minerals' 20-year concession to operate this mine in Panama is unconstitutional. The mine has already ramped down operations after protesters blockaded access to the Punta Rincon port for a supply ship that was crucial for the uh, operations of the mine. It is now looking that this mine might never be ramped up again. The flailing of Panamanian legislators in response to the mass protests has also resulted in legislation banning all future mining concessions, making overturning this legislation necessary to restart the mine or start up any other mine in the future. Chances that this will happen are slim under current political conditions. The mass protests started in October when the Panamanian government approved a new contract with First Quantum, which extended the company's mining license for 20 years in exchange for a minimum annual royalty of $375 million. However, this was broadly seen as not being a high enough benefit for Panama uh, due to the mine's high environmental impact, sparking huge protests which rocked the country. The closure of this mine will have grave consequences for Panama's trade position globally. The mine accounts for a staggering 5% of Panama's GDP and 75% of goods exports, an essential source of foreign currency to pay back debts. Further, First Quantum has opened international arbitration to claw back some of its $10 billion investment in the mine. This will have an effect on global copper supply, will it not? Um, when full capacity, this mine produces 370,000 tons of copper, around 1.5% of the world's total copper supply. With forecasters having estimated 150 to 300,000 ton surplus market in 2024, the closure of the Cobra Panama for 2024 could bring the market into a deficit sooner than expected. If this results in higher prices, this could knock the outlook for the cost of energy transition off course as usual. Copper is near irreplaceable for electrification, given that it is used extensively for electrical transmission and in electrical components. Of course, this has proven to be unconvincing for degrowther activists such as Leonardo DiCaprio and Greta Thunberg, who have cheered on the shutdown of the mine. Um, there's a lot of chaos around the resource sector right now. Hey? Mm. I mean, the the worry could be that, you know, that this mine is, it's a very important mine, but Panama isn't a huge producer of copper, unlike places like Peru and Chile. But if, if this sort of thing becomes a common occurrence, we, we could see dramatic changes in the market in the near future. Let's well, say I if, think... this, if this catches on in, in Chile, one of the largest, I, I think it's the Escondida mine, far larger than this mine, uh, we could easily see something like that happen. This could be the canary in the copper mine. It is very precedent setting in the whole, in the auspices of a very critical mineral. Got anything else today? Yeah, last up, let's turn to the Clean Electricity Regulations and the Sovereignty Act. So on Tuesday, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith 
announced that the government of Alberta would invoke the Sovereignty Act for the first time in response to Ottawa's proposed clean electricity regulations. Premier Smith has repeatedly expressed concerns that compliance with these clean electricity regulations, which uh, demand the achievement of a net zero grid by 2035, with a few exceptions, would pose a challenge for Alberta, which uses natural gas for the bulk of its electricity. This is the first use of the Sovereignty Act, which is designed to allow the government of Alberta to reject federal laws and regulations that it believes will negatively impact Alberta or which are considered to be outside of federal constitutional jurisdiction. Regulation of electricity has traditionally been an area of provincial jurisdiction. However, the federal government has justified its moves into electricity regulation under the same powers which it believes were granted to it by the Supreme Court of Canada ruling on the constitutionality of the carbon pricing backstop. Um, it's interesting to note that the recent court rulings finding the Federal Impact Assessment Act, the IAA, as well as the ban on single-use plastics unconstitutional have demonstrated limits on federal jurisdiction on environmental matters, although the, the federal government seems to be at this point ignoring those uh, uh, rulings. Um, by using the Sovereignty Act, the government of Alberta is instructing its provincial agencies to not enforce or cooperate in the clean electricity regulations. Uh, in my mind, this could be a risky move as it creates deep uncertainty for investing in Alberta's private electricity industry. In response, Federal Minister Wilkinson Gibo have said they were blindsided by this move. However, would one would have to be blind to be blindsided by this move. The UCP party made fighting these regulations a plank of their policy platform in the last election. Um, I don't, you know, it's political posturing, certainly by ministers Wilkinson and Gibo. While the federal government may have been consulting the provinces on this matter, whether they were taking their considerations into account is another question. Kelly Kreiderman, good writer with the Globe and Mail, Put, had an op-ed out uh, yesterday, I believe it was, Joe, that these regulations would certainly hit the prairie provinces harder than their hydro-rich neighbours. A one-size-fits-all regulatory mechanism is guaranteed to provoke a response, and this time the federal government may need to start the court challenge. Um, you know where I side on this issue. It's interesting, though. What would, Do you have any more comments about it? It is interesting. Um uh, underlining kind of the the uncertainty here in Alberta, whereas um, I believe uh, Scott Moe in Saskatchewan has also indicated that uh, Saskatchewan will not be complying with these regulations, but it's a little bit more cut and dry in Saskatchewan. Since Sask Power is a crown corporation, they kind of uh, fall directly under the authority of the Saskatchewan provincial government. So th- w- when the Saskatchewan government says we're not going to comply with this, they have their marching orders. Yeah. But where it comes to a private market such as exists in Alberta, it's much more difficult for these operators to figure out, you know, which rules are they going supposed to follow and uh, who will end up coming on top here. And while, you know, there's a lot of court decisions recently that have been indicating that maybe the uh, situation where it comes to federal jurisdiction here is changing, and this is especially true since the federal government has undermined its own carbon pricing backstop with the, uh, the heating fuels exemption, I don't envy the people who are making investment decisions right now where it comes to electricity in Alberta. No, I don't either. It'll it'll sort itself out. I, I have confidence that that uh, technologies and the uh, the well-to-do spirit in Alberta will certainly get to a point with the greening of the electrical grid 
in the next decade that gets it gets it to a point where there where a negotiation with the federal government on the amount of of uh, clean electricity becomes a number that can be ma- that that matters but can be achieved. Um, and I'll provide more input into that uh, as time goes by, Joe. With my appointment to the uh, chair of the Energy, uh, or sorry, Emissions Reduction Alberta, which just happened a couple of weeks ago, I can tell you that it's very interesting to be around all these smart uh, folks that are developing some of the solutions to more green electricity. And uh, I'll continue to report on that as as, as I can. Yeah, great, Kelly. There you go. These are great stories, Joe. Thanks for bringing them up. Yeah, not a problem, Kelly. And uh, for our listeners, I'd just like to remind you again that you can subscribe to the Energy Security Forum newsletter on our website uh, to get these stories and more directly into your inbox for free every Wednesday. So please subscribe. Great, Joe. Let's move over to your interview with Yvonne Klisch. For today's interview, recorded November 28, 2023, we discussed the progress of the global energy transition, including some important issues in European energy, uh, as well as consideration of the evolving role of Hydro-Quebec. With me to discuss this from Paris, France, is Avon Klisch. Avon is a fellow at the Montreal Centre for International Studies, or CERIUM, where he specializes in the study of international energy. Prior to his current role, Avon held positions at Hydro-Quebec as a commercial delegate and project manager, developing and managing institutional and commercial projects in Africa and Asia. Before this, Yvonne worked in the External Relations Department of the African Development Bank in Tunis. In 2022, he published a book on the geopolitics of energy, which was a finalist for the 2023 edition of the Hubert Reeves Prize for Best Book on Science in Quebec. We're also happy to say that Yvonne is a fellow with us at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Delighted to have you back on the podcast, Yvonne. Thank you for ha- having me. I, I listen to all your podcasts, read your very useful weekly newsletter. Okay, great. Yeah, and uh, this is going to be a very interesting conversation, so I'm looking forward to it. So I'd like to start off with an op-ed you recently wrote for Le Devoir in October about the divergence between the outlooks for oil demand proposed by OPEC and the IEA out to 2045 and 2050, respectively. We've talked a bit about this on the intro to the podcast, but I think you'll be able to give us a little bit more uh, context. You note in the article that while OPEC forecasts 116 million barrels per day of oil consumption by 2045, the IEA's popular net zero scenario proposes just 20 million barrels per day of consumption by 2050. So what is the difference in methodology between these two outlooks and why do you think they followed such different methodologies? The point that I wanted to make with this op-ed is that the messages coming from both organizations are confusing for the public. One organization, OPEC, makes forecasts on future oil demand based on classic parameters like population and economic growth and sees oil consumption rising in the developing world, especially in Asia and Africa. Side comment on this uh, OPEC forecast, decarbonization is electrification. However, except for North America, Europe, and China, electrification remains a huge challenge. Take Africa. Its population will double from now to 2050. The uh, electricity networks in Africa are underdeveloped. And when there is a system, like in South Africa, electricity supply is not reliable, thus hindering the capacity to move forward in the energy transition and adopting uh, electric vehicles. 
For the International Energy Agency, its flagship report, by far the most widely reported one, is the 2050 net zero scenario. It is not a forecast, but a pathway of what should be done worldwide to fully reach a decarbonized world economy in 30 years. The issue is that for many, including policymakers, they use this report to somewhat predict that all demand would be lowered by 75% in only 30 years. I think these conflicting approaches and messages are detrimental to energy literacy, confusing people about the challenges of turning an entire economy uh, from fossil fuels to electricity. For sure. I think uh, you remember that uh, earlier this year, the Canada Energy Regulator put out a similar uh, sort of scenario, the uh, Canada net zero scenario, which was widely quoted in the media as saying that uh, demand for Canadian oil specifically was going to drop to, I want to say, around 1.6 million barrels per day uh, by 2050 under under the net zero scenario, uh, which is a significant drop from where we are today. And then the question is, you know, when people see that, they, they have this idea that that's the, that's the future that we're headed toward. And, you know, of course, this is kind of the future that we'd like to be heading toward, perhaps. Uh, but when we're talking about a future where climate change is going to happen, but also we don't have enough energy, that's a pretty bad world as well. So, uh, yeah, I agree that the energy literacy thing is, a, is an issue. Absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, for energy specialists, energy analysts, they uh, probably get these these, dif these uh, differences. But for uh, common people, you know, the, the, the people in general, the public, they, they lose the nuances and it's normal. You know, they don't have all the time that uh, we have uh, uh, devoting our, uh, our time to the uh, energy sector in all its nuances. But uh, for the other people, some might think, uh, listening to the IEA scenarios, that we're almost there, that the objective is almost reached. Uh, oil will decline significantly over the next uh, decades, but that's not the case. It's really more of a, um, a pathway uh, of what should be done to, to get there. But it's absolutely not a certification that we've reached the objective, or or, or that we are on, on the right uh, on the right path. Mm -hmm. So, in your view, uh, do you think that the OPEC forecast is more realistic than the IEA's forecasts? But again, the IEA has three uh, forecasts, uh, three different scenarios. Mm -hmm. One is is based more more or less on on policy driven uh, uh, decisions or policies. Uh, by taken by uh, the different governments, and the other one, the w w the most quoted one, is the net zero uh, 2050 scenario, and uh, this is the one that gets all uh, the attention. And uh, the, the thing is that with uh, this 2021 report, it was tabled firstly in 2021. Uh, there was one quote in the report saying that uh, we can't invest anymore if we want a net zero world by 2050 no more investment in oil and gas should be uh, should be made uh, and this we all know that this is unrealistic because there's still we still have an economy based on fossil fuels and uh, these uh, assets need investments obviously uh, to cover uh, our basic uh, energy needs uh, here in Canada and also elsewhere so, but this this uh, quote taken out of context has been used by many people, NGOs, etc., to uh, put fingers at uh, at oil and gas company for 
continuing to invest in their infrastructures. And uh, this, uh, I think, confuses, uh, is not, I think, a good, uh, a valu valuable addition to, uh, to the, the energy debate and the, uh, all the uh, talks about around energy transition. Yeah, I think that's pretty well said. So uh, since you're currently in Paris and uh, currently touring Europe, I'd like to uh, turn to Europe and talk a little bit about uh, European energy policy. So first of all, I'd like to look into the issue of uh, Nord Stream. So those two pipelines in the uh, Baltic Sea. So Nord Stream is the subject of a recent book in French by journalist uh, Marianne van uh, Rentergem. This book proposes that European lawmakers, and particularly the leaders of Germany, were too naive about Russia's intentions with the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines. So naivety about uh, Putin's intentions seems like an adequate explanation for sure about the approval of Nord Stream 1 uh, prior to the seizure of Crimea in 2014. But does it really, you know, explain Germany's permit for the construction of Nord Stream 2 in 2018? So this would have been after Russia did its first stage of the invasion of Ukraine. You know, Joe, this whole story about Nord Stream is uh, an extremely interesting one from an historical point of view. Officially, the whole deal was between Germany and Moscow back 50 years ago for the supply of cheap gas with a parallel objective to ease tensions between Moscow and Europe. Over time, cheap gas has become very beneficial for Germany in its economy, its industrial power, and the country became more or, what, more or less addicted to this uh, cheap gas. It's important to remind listeners that Germany has always pushed the limits in terms of its dependence on, on Russian gas. In the 1980, the country had a commitment with the United States that it will not import more than 20% of its gas from Russia. Then, a decade later, this limit was put at somewhat 30% and 40%, etc. With the two Nord Stream, Nord Stream pipelines in operation, this level of dependency would have almost reached 60%. What's also important to say is that, is that many people, including U.S. leaders, analysts, scholars, have kept warning Europe, but especially Germans, about the dangers of being too energy dependent on Moscow, that at some point in time, Putin will, will use this dependency to exert pressures on Europe for political objectives. Germany stayed deep to this warning, but learned the hard lesson in 2022 with Russia cutting most of its gas supplies and Germany suspending its contract with Nord Stream. This is a story that we've been following for a little while. I'd say this has hurt both Russia and Europe economically. You know, it's that's the thing about these sorts of trade relationships of energy is that it's beneficial to both sides to have both, you know, a good supply of reliable energy, as well as for the other side to have a market to sell their energy to. So Russia was getting great benefits from that European cash coming in, and Europe was getting great benefits from that Ru that Russian energy coming in. So that yeah, these, these absolutely, and this relationship off. worked well uh, actually over uh, long decades. But at the same time, this the level of dependency increased uh, time and again. And uh, at some point, it was it was almost obvious that uh, Putin would use this leverage to uh, gain political, uh, to reach political objectives. And he de decided that 2022 was the right time for him to do so. It's almost like they were playing chicken, because if you remember with the with the Nord Stream, like the gas games that Russia was playing with, with Nord Stream, they weren't really doing anything to actually permanently damage the pipelines. 
And then the pipelines were destroyed, and there's some big questions about who did that. But many people say that it's not really in the interest of Russia to, uh, you know, cut that leash that they had on Germany, I suppose. In, in the book the, that I've read by uh, by the French journalists, it's mentioned that, you know, the, there was a lot of countries who had interest in breaking this, uh, these pipelines, including Russia, because uh, with the, uh, the cutoff of, of gas to Europe, they were liable to uh, their partners and they could have been prosecuted with billions of dollars on in potential damages so it was uh it was less costly for them you know if obviously they did it, it, would, it it's less costly for them to say look uh we, we cannot be liable for uh for for this damage that was that was caused by an external party or else uh, they would pro probably have been prosecuted by Europe for uh for interrupting gas supplies mm -hmm. It's a very interesting situation. Obviously, a very terrible thing that has happened to Europe here, you know, with the inflation, uh, growing energy prices. Like I, I visited Europe recently and the amount of inflation that they've seen, you know, if, if we think it was bad over here in Canada and the United States, in Europe, it was absolutely awful. Absolutely. And governments have to put in, especially France and Germany, have put in billions of dollars to protect consumers and industries. Uh, against uh, high, very high energy prices, and you know they reached record levels back uh, in 2022. And these uh, these people are obviously had to be uh, protected, or else they couldn't simply pay their bills and would have uh, suffered the consequences. So uh, it was a, it it was a really big impact uh, this 2022 energy crisis in Europe, but again, especially in France and in Germany. Yeah, I think we'll dive right into that. Like you said, Germany has been hit hard by Russia's games with the Nord Stream pipeline and all of the uh, gas supply. So uh, the spike in gas prices in particular has hurt German industry badly. Can you give just a quick overview of what Germany's response has been and uh, how this has affected Germany's economic position? Oh la la, there are uh, serious talks in Germany about the country losing its industrial power following their interruption of the supply of Russian gas. Uh, in 2022, the country had absolutely no import facilities to receive uh, liquefied natural gas from elsewhere. So uh, Germany had to rush uh, to install temporary facilities. The country were, was lucky uh, last year with a mild winter and a decrease in consumption resulting from high energy prices. However, and this is a signal of a new era. Berlin has just recently adopted a 15 billion euro package to support companies consuming large amount of electricity just for 2024 to allow them to stay competitive in Europe. What a major change of situation in, in compared to, to the past. I think there's also some fights going on in Germany right now around fiscal rules. A court in Germany recently struck down this uh, funding mechanism they had for green energy projects. That's yeah. another complication. Yeah, I've, I've heard about this. Yeah, they, this uh, yeah this uh, decision has been overruled, and uh, so I changed the, the game plan for Germany for the uh, for 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 the next uh, for the next year. Mm -hmm. And Germany has always been, you know, very much a uh, a penny pincher where it comes to uh, fiscal rules, and uh, I think historically has even caused some resentments in the European Union in general for uh, imposing very strict fiscal rules throughout the uh, throughout the uh, economic union. But I think over the next few months, this situation will somewhat change a little bit because, you know, 
industries and 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 consumers need need a lot of space, you know, to to face a higher energy costs. And uh, and again, you know, we, we one should be reminded that you know Germany places itself in a very rough spot, you know, uh, on the energy energy wise with uh, the complete uh, stop of uh, nuclear uh, energy and also the this decision to move away rightly from coal. But now you have two major sources of energy that that was present in the past for Germany that that's no more can play a role uh, to cover its uh, its energy needs needs. So it's somewhat uh, reassuring for them, obviously, that France has uh, puts its house in order. Uh, we, we can remember that last year there was lots of maintenance issues in France. Now it's been solved and uh, France will be in a much better position to uh, help Germany uh, for the coming winter. On that point, I think we should turn to France and uh, talk about the role of nuclear in Europe. So uh, France has provided, of course, huge state support for nuclear, uh, in particular, the well, setting up EDF, which is, uh, I think it's it's recently been nationalized, but it has always been under uh, heavy state involvement. Meanwhile, Germany, ever since the Fukushima crisis in Japan, Germany decided to uh, shut down all of its nuclear facilities over the course of the following 10 years. And I think earlier this year, it shut down its last two nuclear power plants. And uh, this has set up a series of fights between the EU's two largest economies about charting energy policy into the future, including a dispute over French support for EDF. So uh, what is the current situation for nuclear in France and in Europe more broadly? The, the continent officially, by policy, considers uh, nuclear energy as a solution to its needs. In general, I think we can say that Europe, except for Germany, is clearly open to nuclear. Many countries, Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, think that uh, nuclear brings them three clear benefits, decarbonization, capacity to support intermittent renewable and, uh, very importantly, energy security and end to the uh, reliance on Russia. As for France, nuclear is still at the core of the country's uh, energy future. Um, this form of energy has brought tremendous benefits to, for the country with uh, reliable electricity at a competitive price and, very importantly, energy security. Over time, mostly to be in line with uh, the European Union's rules and regulations, EDF was partly privatized, but uh, in, with uh, the 2022 crisis and considering EDF high debt level, uh, the government decided to buy all EDF's uh, shares. So the French government has its hands entirely free for further development of nuclear stations, be they uh, large stations or small nuclear reactors, we can expect France to stay uh, a clear leader in the nuclear energy sector. So kind of sticking with the rules in the European Union, typically the EU has stuck with a kind of single market policy, especially for the development of energy. And th th this has meant that, uh, you know, state support for energy development is a uh, kind of a big taboo in, in Europe, which, like you said, is why uh, France was forced to uh, privatize pieces of EDF to make sure that they weren't providing such extensive state support. Uh, however, I feel like after this energy crisis in 2022, uh, state support for energy and individual states deciding to support their own energy security 
uh, has become more accepted. So do you have any views on uh, the outlook for this sort of uh, more extensive state support in the EU? Look, there's uh, definitely a, a re reversal or a change of view, a change of paradigm regarding state uh, involvement in the energy sector in Europe. I think there's uh, a, a much more openness uh, to state uh, interventions and also to uh, actually energy security. Uh, now it has become, you know, the, the, over the last decades, it, the focus was more on uh, lowering energy prices to com competitive uh, markets and also uh, environmental policy, climate change policies, etc. But as you may guess, energy security has become now first and foremost the priority uh, in Europe. Uh, so we already see uh, uh, changes in attitudes regarding uh, state participation in the energy sector. Uh, all uh, everybody understand that this has become key and, and paramount for for any country. Uh, so uh, there's um, uh, already rules and regulations that are being revised to uh, uh, make uh, states uh, uh, able to participate more in uh, in uh, the energy development. Very interesting uh, updates on Europe there. Now I'd like to bring it back to Canada and Quebec, since you know we're the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, we're not just the Global Affairs Institute. Need to make sure this is relevant to Canada. You recently wrote another article for Le Devoir about uh, a plan under Hydro-Quebec's new president and the former Deputy Minister of Finance, Michael Sabia, to add a vast array of new power plants uh, to Hydro-Quebec's fleet to support Quebec's future energy needs while also keeping the grid low emissions. So what exactly does this plan for Hydro-Quebec call for? And are there any complications that you can think of? What Hydro-Quebec and its new CEO have announced recently, an update of the uh, company's strategic plan is hugely ambitious. Uh, the company intends to significantly extend power supply to cover the needs of the energy transitions with added capacity to existing hydropower stations new hydro, a lot of added wind power capacity, huge energy savings programs. In short, a lot of money will come out of, uh, of Auto Quebec over the next few years. With these um, huge added investments, uh, issues are pressures on uh, electricity prices, uh, manpower for all these new uh, infrastructures with unemployment uh, already low in Quebec. Uh, also, social support for these numerous projects, especially from Native uh, people. And, and finally, a major issue is, is the renewal uh, or not of the uh, electricity contract with Newfoundland from the Churchill Falls Power Station coming to an end in uh, two, 2041. Uh, for a hydro power station of this size, one needs at least 15 years from planning to construction and operation. So Hydro-Quebec will need now sooner than later to have clarity on the uh, reliability of this uh, important source of supply. Well, I think you um, you said that a lot of added wind power capacity, but uh, is there, th there's also room for additional hydropower. Yeah, absolutely. Hydro-Quebec, uh, uh, there's a twofold strategy for, for hydro first to try to uh, add capacity to existing uh, power stations. That's an obvious but also uh, consider new projects. And these projects obviously are linked to the renewal or not of the Churchill Falls Power Station. If the contract can be renewed, 
at uh, on, under favorable conditions for both parties, obviously we would need less development of new uh, hydropower stations. So this this questions of uh, constructing or not new uh, power stations is really directly linked to the capacity of both parties to to come to an understanding for a new contract. Mm -hmm. Well, it would be very interesting for me to see uh, more new hydro coming online because Churchill Falls in Newfoundland plus Site C in British Columbia uh, are, are well known for being very difficult projects, of course, and uh, with very long timelines for construction and have largely been seen as kind of white elephant projects that uh, that provincial governments have been saddled with. But I'm very curious to see how Hydro-Quebec manages, uh, you know, the, the idea of adding new hydro uh, under the uh, current kind of regulatory, political and social environments. Obviously, you know, uh, we all know that the, the conditions under which these uh, power stations have been developed, constructed and operated are very, very different from today's conditions. Uh, but one thing on the positive side for Hydro-Quebec is that it has always developed its projects under budget. They ha there hasn't been any white elephants for hydro. Uh, it has developed 62 uh, uh, power stations and more. Uh, always, I think we can say uh, successfully. Uh, but obviously, today's is another uh, environment. It certainly will be more of a challenge, and there will be obviously um, questions about uh, keeping cost uh, under control. Uh, but again, if we look at the past, Hydro-Quebec has a good record and reputation on constructing and operating power stations. And this is also key for the company to attract uh, institutional uh, investors uh, to, um, to lend the money uh, for the company to uh, construct and operate uh, these, these, these stations. I think this is really something that, you know, across North America, this needs to be paid attention to. And uh, I, I don't doubt that Hydro-Quebec will be able to uh, pull this off. Watching the ways that Hydro-Quebec manages this will be extremely relevant across North America as we look to build new hydro power stations, for example, in British Columbia and in Ontario and various places like that, as uh, power demand goes up. I will tend to think that social license is really the key here. It's probably... I think in Hydro-Quebec's view, it's probably the most challenging part of the equation because uh, obviously, um, the again, the conditions are, are have changed. Uh, people are not uh, as enthusiastic as they were uh, for a new big infrastructure. Um, so I think the, the thinking about getting this, the, the approval uh, for this project has changed. They're probably... Um, uh, solutions involving uh, financial participation of communities into this project. Uh, and I think this is uh, something that uh, will probably be a new factor uh, helping these projects to, to, to move along. Very interesting uh, discussion here, Yvonne. I'd like to just get to one last question, which we always ask our guests. Uh, what are you reading these days? Oh, I'm happy to say that, that my last readings were uh, from two Canadian writers. The first one is Quill of the Dove by Ian Thomas Shaw about a peace plan put forward by a French journalist in the Middle East. A very brilliant description of the politics in the region. And the, the other one is Katsina Boulevard by Catherine Vu, a medical doctor uh, in Quebec. It is about the destiny of an orphan child in Vietnam with the Vietnam War as, as the historical context, 
both books available in French and English. Okay, great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a great discussion and, uh, you know, always, always great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. What about the newsletter? I, I hope you have any plan to hand it. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, because be, I, uh... I'll be an orphan if you do that. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgaica slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalman, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.